Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. This week, Political Economy Radio returns with a new logo, new life, and an episode focused on Latin America. First, Aaron Taus speaks with me on Colombia's rejected peace deal, and then Kyla Sankey unpacks what happened to the pink tide that now seems to be limping along across much of Latin America. Aaron Taus is professor of international political economy at the Universidad Nacional in Medellin, Colombia. I spoke with him to better understand the devastating and unexpected no vote in Colombia's recent referendum on a peace deal that would have ended 50 years of civil war. His analysis is deeply rooted in broader economic forces shaping contemporary Colombia. You're there on the ground. Here is my conversation. Describe maybe just the days, you know, the recent days after the referendum. What was it like? What was the atmosphere? What was the reaction to this sort of uh, narrow defeat for peace? Um, Well, I talked to um, my friends and uh, all of them, they were actually in a state of shock because nobody uh, actually expected the, the no camp to win. Right, but um, especially Medellin is a stronghold of the of the of Colombia's right of uh, you know of Uribe's party, so you can imagine that especially here in Medellin you can see a lot of people also celebrating in the streets. You could hear cars honking, and so I mean uh, Medellin is is probably not the place to 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 let's say to to see how the overall uh, reaction to the no uh, vote victory or no camp victory actually was because. Uh, because in, in in places like Cali or Bogota, where the the actually the yes vote won, uh, the vast majority of people were, as I said before, in, in shock. But um, you know, you could you could feel or you could sense that the, in the days before the the actual referendum, that the, especially in the in the uh, you know and the poorer neighborhoods, that a lot of people would vote for 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 no. And I spoke to a couple of friends, uh, Colombian friends, who voted, and they would already be predict- predicting a no victory uh, in the afternoon before the offic- official results uh, would come out. So, um, you know, it's, it, people didn't really know what, what to expect after the, the, res- the result was, was announced. You know, people were talking about now, you know, we will see another 50, 60 years of war, other people would say, you know, we, we have to fight harder for peace than, 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 than ever before. So, you know, it was a mixture of, of you know, of, of relief um, uh, on the part of the, of the no uh, voters or the no camp. And, um, and at the same time, uh, a sort of mixture of the disappointment and, and, uh, and shock in, in, in the yes camp. And, and I mean, it, it, with this tiny margin, it really... You know, the, the results appear to show it this really sharp kind of cleavage, you know, basically 50-50 down the middle for the peace deal. But what's, what's sort of operating in the, in the background of this? You know, it, it, is this, like you said, you know, mostly a kind of regional divide, the one you mentioned? Is it more of a class divide? Is it more an urban-rural thing? So what's what's working there? And two, what do you make of the people who didn't vote too? I mean, the, the turnout was quite low. Yeah, that's something we should also uh, mention. Actually, only 38% um, of the Colombian electorate participated in, in the plebiscite, right? So talking about a 60, a 60 points, no, 62 point 
abstention rate. So which demonstrates really that the vast majority of Colombians are not really interested in, uh, in, in, uh, in the peace process or in, in politics in general. You wouldn't see a high abstention rate in the last referendum on the peace deal with the FARC, but also in the past presidential and, and, and uh, parliamentary elections, right? So you could, you could say that a lot of Colombians, they are pretty, let's say, pretty indifferent um, about what's going on here in Colombia. A lot of people have really, after decades of war and, and also repression against political uh, organizations, uh, who would fight who would fight for a different Colombia, right? And let's say a lot of people have lost hope in the prospects of, an, uh, let's say, a more just, more in, in, inclusive Colombia. And a lot of people would just say, look, you know, politics doesn't it doesn't bring uh, about any change. So I rather focus on my life and I rather focus on survival and my vote. And you would hear that quite a lot from people. My vote would make a difference anyways, right? Which which is surprising given the fact that just those 50,000 votes did make a, you know, a tiny number made a difference. And and um, and uh, talking to a little bit about the, 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 the urban and rural divide, it was quite remarkable to, to see that, you know, all the big cities with the exception of, of Medellin, and if I'm not mistaken, also Pucaramanga, they voted for, uh, for yes, uh, they voted yes. And most of those areas that uh, have been that, that have been affected by by the by the by the Colum- by Colombia's armed conflict over the past de- decades overwhelmingly uh, accepted the peace deal. So you'd see, for instance, Chocó, which is Colombia's you know poorest um, uh, region, had an 80 percent vote in favor of the, the, the peace deal with the FARC. So you could actually, and also some areas in 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 uh, in, in Urala, here in Antioquia, which is a which is an area that historically been negatively affected by the hostilities, also voted uh, uh, for the peace deal, right? And you could see that especially those areas where people really had to suffer, that they wanted the deal to the, the war to end. And uh, in comparison, you know, people living in the in the cities. Have been relatively less, a little affected by the by the um, by the hostilities. They rejected the peace deal, which also tells you quite a lot about the influence of the media here, here in Colombia, and especially you know the, the the no campaign, which was not only in the media but also especially on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Ex President Alvarez has a really large following on Twitter, right? About four million people follow him and read his messages, and he's really really active also. On, on Facebook, I would argue that a lot of people, especially those who, who you know, weren't decided on, on which side they would stand in the vote, they um, they would they would uh, they would re- uh, see the no campaign much more attractive, right? And they would really buy into all that fear mongering and you know and and all that that, that lies and this information that was spread by the no campaign in order to to, to win the the plebiscite. And what's the Zooming out even a bit more, what's the bigger background to this vote? I mean, why, in short, sort of, why now? Why why was there this, and especially before the vote, people really thought that, yes, you know, had a very high chance of winning. Why, why, why this sort of push for peace now, and how does it relate to kind of changes, especially in the political economy, something that you're, you know, you've studied so much? Yeah, um... It's really complex again the whole the whole thing. I, I mean, some people would argue that you know that um, Uribe is actually not 
uh, wanting to or doesn't really want to go back to war. He's also uh, he is supporting. Uh, he also seeing if he want the need to to sign a peace deal here in Colombia. But um, he's re he, what he's actually rejecting is the the, the the particular peace deal that has been signed between the Santos government and the FARC. And a lot of people would argue that he's actually already preparing the ground for the presidential election in 2018. So, you know, he's actually attacking Santos and the peace deal with, uh, with the FARC. Not on the grounds that he's he's totally uh, uh, he's he's totally rejecting the say, uh, the peace process as such because actually it was during his government in 2009 and even before that when uh, ex-president Uribe right had, had sought contacts with the FARC and also with the ELN right and the whole business community is also in favor of peace it was quite interesting after the the the, the results came out the day the day, the day after. Uh, there was a there, there was a, a statement published by the country's uh, business association, uh, the business council, and they would say, look, what we need now is, you know, to to uh, to listen to the no camp, but the, the the peace is necessary. They talked again about the you know about uh, economic growth, about uh, increasing um, uh, investment in 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 Colombia once uh, peace deal is inked. So um, I would argue that Uribe is, and let's say that the, the, the fraction that he represents, um, he wants, um, let's say, a more severe, or let's put it, say, he wants, he wants to FARC or to make more concessions. And he, he really wants to protect, and this is what has, has come out in, 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 a, in a paper he published about, you know, necessary changes to the peace deal. He wants to protect the, land, the landowners, Right, because a lot of people over the past decades they have uh, they have not only appropriated um, or, or bought uh, lands that have been stolen from 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 campesinos in the countryside, but but uh, they, they've they've also appropriated illegally public lands, right? And he wants to make sure that uh, let's say that these people who have bought these lands, you know, uh, um, that, that they they will be considered also the the, the legal um, uh, uh, proprietors in the in 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 the in the in the future, so that the peace deal wouldn't uh, wouldn't touch private property in the countryside. Then another issue that that uh, he's he's pushing for is, is uh, political partic participation. So he wants to to uh, to um, to to make sure that the FARC, even before the end of the political arena, are already politically weakened. Right. Right. And is that is that not the case? Now, I mean, I thought FARC even today has, you know, fairly low popularity. Would they would they be a viable political force? Let's say they're they're not a viable political force at the moment. And as as I told before, I mean, the the media has been really working hard over the over the past decades to uh, create a really negative image uh, uh, about the FARC. Right. So I would argue. I just saw some uh, some some. Um, some uh, statistics which said that 88% of Colombians uh, rejected um, the, the political participation of the FARC. So you could you could see that the vast majority of the Colombians actually don't want them to participate in politics, right? But I, I would I would argue that you know the, the the whole no campaign, even let's say even though the the the, the, the political standing of the FARC is pretty weak, um, I think it even contributed to 
you know, of the, 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 to further weakening of the on the of the fund, right? Because I mean, uh, I would say the the Colombian ruling classes they see, of course, that uh, that the 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 opportunities that arise with uh, with uh, uh, in a in a, in a post accord context in Colombia, because you know, uh, social movements and also left uh, wing political parties of the uh, the population in general, they would uh, they would find themselves operating in a, let's say, in a, in a, or at least on paper, right? In a, in a, let's say, in a political arena in which uh, they won't be killed anymore for, their, for, for, for being dissidents, in which they won't be persecuted as, as it was the case in the 1980s. So, I mean, there's definitely, and, and this is what, let's say, uh, you know, social movements in Colombia are actually hoping for, that peace would only, let's say, you know, change the political arena in such a sense that it would create more favorable conditions for, uh, you know, for, let's say, uh, for the Colombian left to organize politically, right, and then to participate in elections and see uh, to what extent the population actually supports their, their agenda. But the, 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 the media and, uh, uh, and also the, the established political parties, of, of course, want to control, let's say, uh, uh, the I want to say restrict the opportunities of of the Colombian left in a in a in a post accord context, right? And I would say all that discourse uh, that Uribe and also the 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 the, the right wing Colombian media is pushing that uh, you know they would uh, always highlight you know the human rights violations perpetrated by the FARC that would always that would always establish this link between the FARC and what he would call Castro Chavismo, right? He's, he's, he's always referring to Venezuela, and 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 I would argue that in in the future, you know, the, the both the media and the Colombian right will tr will try to establish this link between the FARC and between in between the Colombian left in general, because we also, uh, you know, last week the government announced the the um, the, the start of the negotiation with Colombia's second second largest uh, guerrilla force. Right, the uh, National Liberation Army, and and I think you know Venezuela will be uh, will be uh, will serve as a negative example in order to weaken the Colombian left. No, 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 not only the FARC. In the in, in that sense, the no the no campaign used the plebiscite right to really get their ideas across and 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 deepen that that you know that let's say that um, that image that the FARC will actually. Uh, introduce Castro Chavismo here in Colombia. And I mean, it's it's hard to predict the future anyway, and it, this, this question isn't really aimed at that, but how do you see the sort of forces that you, you wrote this good article about, you know, how Colombia's economy has changed and the, in many ways even more dependent on extraction and agribusiness, more internationalized, and in some ways, you know, where peace is is more viable for for capital how how will these kinds of forces this mediate what's going to happen now like you said even Uribe seems not to be pushing for more you know for a return to war um how 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 is how is Colombia's place sort of in the economic forces shaping and its place in the international economy going to be pushing the situation from now onwards yeah look um 
my argument is that Uribe he is against for political and also in 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 part for let's say economic reasons. I mean, he really, as I said before, he really wants to protect the interests of the large large landowners. He would also emphasize the need to uh, to facilitate the expansion of agribusiness in the countryside. He will always talk about private property. You know, the need to really you know, focus on the, the, the capitalist development in uh, in uh, in the countryside in Colombia. So you, you would really, you know, um, you would, you, I would argue you would have to see Uribe as the defender of both the large landowners and also of agribusiness in the countryside, right? So, um, and I would say that he in, in eventually also uh, sees that there's a structural need, right, for Colombia in the in the current in the in the current uh, political economic uh, conjuncture to sign a peace deal with uh, both guerrillas because uh, you know the FARC and also especially the LN uh, because the, the the National Liberation Army they've been much more focused on doing damage to the country's oil uh, uh, infrastructure right they've been they've been really focused on um, on let's say weakening these the expansion of its extractivist uh, uh, mining and oil projects in 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 Colum uh, in, in in the Colombian countryside, right? And if you take a look at all you know all the the organizations and all the institutions that facilitate the the organization of global capitalism, be it now you know, the World Bank, the IMF, the 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 um, also the OECD, also the Inter-American Development Bank, they all talk about. Uh, you know, the need to sign a peace deal. They would say that uh, Colombia's biggest problem now is actually the lack of security in the countryside. They, they re would refer to uh, especially the FARC and the LN, but I will also mention the paramilitary uh, groups that still exist and operate in Colombia and, and also some, some uh, um, criminal gangs that operate in the countryside. But they would argue that you know, in order to expand that extractivist and and agro-industrial model to those uh, areas in in Colombia that are currently under the control of the FARC and of the LN, a peace deal needs to be signed. Because you could see that you know that uh, the, uh, these big mining and 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 oil companies in their in their assessments on Colombia, and you could also read some reports on uh, of different consultancy companies here or consulting companies. They would all always say that look, you know, Colombia is doing great, you know, but you know there's a need to really, let's say, ex you know, to to to, to generate a more uh, uh, stable investment climate, right? To to take uh, to take care of this issue of insecurity, right? And to quote unquote normalize Colombia. Right, because what what Colombia and this is this is pretty uh, I wouldn't say unique, but this is pretty particular uh, in the case of Colombia, because actually two to to the uh, armed conflict over the, the, the last decades, right, parts of Colombia haven't haven't been incorporated into the global uh, market, right. So you could you could argue that once a peace deal is signed and 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 you know the. The, uh, the director or the, the CEO of, um, of of Colombia's biggest oil company, Ecopetrol, he'll be really frank about this. It's like once we 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 sign a peace deal, we would really invest heavily in those areas in Putumayo, right, in 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 Amazonia, right, in the south uh, west of Colombia, and also in the southeast and Llanos, etc., where the the the, the FARC 
and in, in those areas in the north, uh, in the northeast, where the where the Yelena is, is is pretty strong. So we could really expand our, our businesses and our operations against that backdrop of expanding in you know extractivist uh, operations and also agribusiness. Uh, both Uribe and Santos they need to 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 understand that there's there's huge uh, let's say international pressure. Um, um, for Colombia to sign a peace deal, and also, as I mentioned before, Colombia's national um, uh, business association uh, also, uh, you know, uh, emphasized the need to sign a peace deal, even though the the referendum uh, came uh, came out negatively. That was Aaron Taus on Colombia's failed referendum for peace. Second, I spoke with Kyla Sankey, a researcher from the UK who wrote a terrific article for Jacobin on the state of the pink tide of left governments that swept Latin America in the early 2000s. Kyla looks at the present problems and future prospects of a pink tide that is today limping along as the right has returned to power in Argentina and Brazil, while Venezuela remains mired in political and economic crisis. Kyla Sankey. Why don't we start with this claim of yours? Um, and you're right near the beginning of your really fantastic article that the high point of this, you know, so-called pink tide in Latin America may have been roughly in 2005, uh, for instance, you know, when the free trade area of the Americas was rejected, or we could pick some other moment. But maybe you could begin by briefly describing, you know, this kind of decade of, of decline and where these governments find themselves now. Okay, so, I mean, I guess identified kind of the the peak of social struggles and the progressive forces was with the defeat of the Free Trade Agreement to the Americas in 2005, but then also the election of Evo Morales in Bolivia uh, in the same year, and Rafael Correa in Ecuador in 2006. But following that initial kind of honeymoon period that we had, the argument of the article is that these processes started losing their momentum. They entered into a pro, uh, kind of a period of stagnation and, and even decline. And there are probably five key points in that. The first is the loss of support of the social movements, um, which often turned into active opposition and mobilizations of the left. Um, so in Bolivia and Ecuador in around 2011, they had conflicts, the increasing conflicts with indigenous groups over mining and infrastructure projects, uh, which contradicted the in, in alternative development agenda and the principles of indigenous autonomy of these governments. And there was even processes of criminalization and repression of indigenous activists. Um, but also in Brazil in 2013, the students and left-wing activists started kind of broad mass um, protests demanding about public services and governance and uh, concerns of corruption. Um, but also what we've been seeing is kind of the rise of a new form of right-wing populism, uh, which is quite distinct from the authoritarian right that first introduced neoliberalism into the region. Uh, we've got what we're seeing the rise of now is a new far right, which is more comparable to, say, Donald Trump or Berlusconi in Italy, uh, which has a new social base, both in kind of local middle classes and businessmen, but also um, broad popular support of the masses. Um, so you see kind of Macri in Argentina got to power through elections. Um, 
And the kind of main points of mobilization of these people is against the kind of dangers of Bolivarianism or Castro-Chavismo, um, and against corruption and authoritarianism of the left in power. Right. They so, so they've kind of learned some of the lessons of of the populist left in terms of methodology and all of this. Yes, exactly. They are the new anti-status quo populism. Right. Right. Um, and and you actually, I mean, I think what was interesting in the article is that some sense of the status quo was really maintained by all of these governments, right? That even, even you include Venezuela in this, that you say, you know, they didn't really break with the previous kind of, extra, what you call an extraction-based growth model. Is it, is it fair to say that they were mostly concerned with sort of distributing the gains from growth rather than, say, challenging the model, the economic model? Sure. I, I think to fully answer that question, you'd have to look more detail in more detail at kind of the ideological forces that were driving these radical processes, which was, yes, it was anti-neoliberal, mm-hmm. uh, mostly in the kind of 1980s, but specifically the 1990s. But it, was also, it also had a lot of different ideologies, kind of a national popularism and what they say kind of defense of the patria, as well as kind of anti-imperialism um, and also kind of new ideological processes, kind of like indigenous, kind of post-colonial ideas, um, and a really important rejection of the closed two-party system, um, which was kind of in, embodied in the Argentinian slogan, que se vayan todos, uh, throw them all out. Right. Um, it's really important to make a distinction here. You can't just say the pink tide governments. You've kind of got a distinction between the kind of progressive or neo-developmental models, which are most importantly kind of Argentina and Brazil, mm-hmm. uh, which had a certain kind of accommodation with the elites and the ruling classes. Um, in Argentina, we have a, a combination of both the post-neoliberal agenda and a kind of recycled Peronism, um, which which was a it's kind of the traditional political party which became neoliberal. Um, in the 1990s and is again now kind of national popular. Um, and in Brazil, the Partido Trabajador is also... The Workers' Party. The yeah. Workers' Party yeah. is a neo-developmentalist alliance kind of formed in opposition to the neoliberal alliance in that country uh, based on kind of program of mild reformism, political alliances, ruling elites. And it's really since it's been in power distanced itself from the left. Um, and these, these are models which are based more on kind of, um, you know, a new form of developmentalism, which is based on recuperating the role of the state in redistributing wealth and expanding public services, um, but not radically challenging the right. model. So you can contrast Argentina and Brazil with the more radical right. processes of... Bolivia, Venezuela, Ecuador. Exactly, right. yeah, which uh, don't really take their legacy from kind of developmentalism, but more from kind of trying to develop this idea of a new 21st century socialism, which mm-hmm. is, at least in political terms, definitely a very important rupture right. from the past. You know, it, it's based on, um, you know, I, I would say kind of a lot of a lot of new kind of ideological and political processes, most importantly, um, this idea of a new type of, 21st century socialism, which is different from the socialism of the past. They're trying to look to deepen new types of democracy and make it kind of more direct 
and substantive, which was accompanied by kind of the calling of constituent assemblies mm -hmm. in a lot of these countries. Um, but also in, um, especially in Bolivia and Ecuador, the recognition of indigenous rights um, right. enshrined in the idea of buen vivir, which was a really serious challenge to the kind of basic model of development as economic growth. Right, so at all kind of, costs, kind of. Exactly. It was looking at kind of the values, kind of indigenous values, measure ecological values mm -hmm. of the goals of a society as opposed to just kind of economic right. terms. And I guess there's the difference there too is that, you know, whatever's happened in, in Argentina and Brazil, we've had the right to take power. Again, whereas in Bolivia, Venezuela, Ecuador, to, to various degrees, you still have the left kind of holding on to some extent. Especially with that contrast, was it, was it this sort of structural we weakness, this, you know, inability to really challenge things that undermined the left ultimately? In Brazil and Argentina, to some extent, is it also, un, you know, undermining the other countries as, as well, especially when, you know, for example, Venezuela, the economy remained heavily tied to oil and is, in, you know, in a bit of a shambles as, as a result of the, of the price collapse. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's definitely kind of one of the key points you have to look at with all of these governments across the board is that they never, you know, none of them from the far left to the kind mm -hmm. of more progressive models, never challenged what they call the commodities consensus, uh, mm -hmm. which is basically the fact that the, you know, the rise to power of these governments coincided with a commodities boom um, of raw materials like oil, coal, copper, but also kind of agro-exports. Um, and the commodities consensus really refers to a twofold process where on the one hand, um, the social programs of these left-wing governments mm -hmm. uh, increase the consumption capacity of the kind of marginalized popular classes. Um, but on the other hand, you know, these programs are, fun are funded through increasing their dependence on the extraction and export of raw materials, um, including mining and agro-exports. Um, and this is something that was, which was not challenged by any mm -hmm. of these governments. Um, so the result is that you know, for all of these governments, while the significant or most important gains that they've made have been material, you know, in kind of getting popular and working sectors access right. to basic goods, housing, right. higher education and healthcare. Huge, huge reductions in extreme poverty levels, all of this stuff, right? Oh, really impressive figures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But on, um, and also kind of in confronting US hegemony, hegemony, hegemony mm -hmm. in the region, kind of, you know... Um, and trying to form a new power block rep right. represented in kind of new types of political alliances, the most important of which was ALBA, mm -hmm. a very kind of alternative model of kind of building strategic alliances of the mm -hmm. countries based on principles of solidarity. Um, but fundamentally in these mm -hmm. countries, what you do have is that the, the basic structures of kind of property production and power were never challenged. And in fact, you know, all of these governments had to in some way accommodate these structures with the possible exception of Venezuela um, as they deepened their dependence on global capitalism and generated new forms of inequalities. Um, so you see the kind of the new, the, so, you know, the kind of the nationalizations of a lot of these governments were targeted at foreign assets quite often, whereas the national elite specifically kind of related to kind of the economic conglomerates, this new rise of trans-Latin corporations in Brazil and Argentina, 
um, and also the domestic elites tied to kind of, you know, agro-exports, mining and services were never really challenged. So, you know, it was kind of helping the poor, but never confronting the rich. Right. And I, I imagine sense. up to a certain degree, that was okay, right? You sort of needed this, some kind of tacit understanding with these local elites to be able to govern, especially for, I guess, some of the, the Brazils and Argentinas. Well, it, it was okay while the prices were right. high. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, you can do this on the side with, the, you know, the government budget and we get the gains from 100 plus dollar barrel oil or rubber or whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, I mean, it does depend on what kind of thing what kind of thing you were extracting. So if you mm. look at, for example, in Ecuador, mm-hmm. I mean, actually it did lead to a lot of new kind of confrontations and conflicts, right. even before the decline in the prices of commodities, mm. which is where there's a lot, I mean, in it was 2011 when Korea lost the support of the indigenous movement, right. uh, basically because of his expansion of mining in a mm-hmm. lot of territories. So, you know, on the one hand, they had a, the support of a lot of the kind of poor and marginalised working classes, but at the same time, you know, there was a, a reconfiguration of all these territories which were opened up to right. capital in a way that they'd never been before mm-hmm. in Latin America. Right, and often territories that were settled by either indigenous or marginalised communities. And yes. that's where you had the... Exactly, exactly, and, and the environmental consequences which right. go along with that. I mean, the other thing that I, that, that I thought was... was really interesting and, and pointed that you wrote was that, you know, in many ways there was really opportunities wasted in terms of the way even these, you know, limited programs uh, were developed. So you mentioned that, you know, social programs, the ones that there were, were not tied to popular education or mobilization, for example, in Brazil where you had these, you know, massive public programs what what was the sort of lost opportunity there? Maybe you could expand on that a bit. And, and 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 I think this again gets to the relationship between the pink tide governments and the social movements. Yeah. And, and how how those two interacted and how that interaction sort of developed. Okay. Well, I mean, I, maybe just to start answering this mm. by saying that there were some really really incredible examples of you know at a local level how we can look to models of building socialism today mm. based on kind of increases of. Uh, popular protagonism, popular education, lifting popular consciousness. So, I mean, you know, the PT in the 1990s started these ideas of participatory budgeting, Mm -hmm. uh, which involved, you know, whole local level communities, and they fused together kind of political political consciousness Mm -hmm. with, um, you know, new types of democratic participation that had a real effect on, at least at the local municipal level, how budgets would be redistributed and a really important rise in the kind of level of consciousness and protagonism of a lot of communities and groups. Um, or the most important example, which would probably be in uh, Venezuela, mm-hmm. the Bolivarian missions, which right. combined kind of, you know, uh, new resources for local communities with new types of protagonism and how to redistribute and organise those resources, which are really, really important right. experiments. Right, it's not um, just the government coming in and planting a health clinic, but the health clinic, the way it's run and the way it exactly. works in the community. Exactly, would be organised by the local communities. Right. With contradictions and problems, but, you know, I mean, the, the, the basic idea is there. 
Um, and so you can, but you can contrast those kind of initiatives with something like, for example, say, Argentina, where really um, the kind of the the Kirchner's models um, were basically aimed at kind of you know they were food emergency plans and soup kitchens, which mm. were set up to provide kind of life support to the most impoverished sectors of the population during an economic crisis, um, but they didn't. They kind of, on the one hand, didn't do anything to tackle the underlying structural causes of poverty in the long run. Um, so, you know, after the initial kind of emergency, they didn't have any strategies for alternative organisation of livelihoods beyond kind of being dependent on these programmes. Um, but also they were used as a strategic mechanism for co-opting um, popular sectors and social organisations, so the kind of unemployment schemes would be linked to bringing on board of loyal activists and kind of pushing away of kind of more radical or oppositional or critical activists. And something similar could be said of the PT, of the Brazil's Workers' Party, when it was in power insofar as, you know, huge amount of previous, of left-wing activists were brought into governing structures, mm-hmm. you know, and they kind of became part of the governing cadre of the Brazilian Workers' Party, but at the same time, kind of radical activists were distanced and, you know, kind of unions were often demobilized from mm-hmm. their more radical content. We'll take care of it. Yes. The government structures, right? And all exactly, of kind of accommodation. Mm-hmm. Um, just a few minutes left, I mean, it, 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 it's it's... It's cliche, but I mean, and no one has a crystal ball, but I guess the question is, you know, what, what, what comes next? What comes after the pink tide? Or, or is this just the pink tide, you know, receding or completely washing into the ocean, as it were? Um, especially with this, you know, with the coup by Tamer in, in Brazil, like you said, Macri taking power in Argentina, Venezuela, you know, being in a very, very difficult situation economically, all of this and the opposition having taken power in the in the parliament there. Um, is there still a sort of political economic project that can be reignited? Will it be different where, you know, yeah, what's 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 the state right now and, where, and in which direction is it trending? Well, I think it's impossible to say mm-hmm. that it's heading in a clear direction one way or another. I mean, it's really important to remember that the right that are coming back into power have no real alternative strategy. Right. You know, they're, they're implementing the same policies that they did in the 1980s and 1970s, which kind of caused all this mass protest and upheaval in the first place. And they don't really have any alternative agenda to that. And that was already rejected by the people. And, you know, what we do have in a lot of these countries is a new kind of a new rise in political consciousness, mobilization of people, which means that they won't just simply kind of accept right. all of these changes being put back on the face. So I don't think it's clear that the right could come back in with any clear hegemony or with such a broad range of social policies that they did in the kind of 1980s, especially in Venezuela, Ecuador and Bolivia. Um, but at the same time, I think that we need to, I mean... There needs to be a strategy for organising and mobilising 
against the far right mm-hmm. as it comes in. I mean, first of all, not you know to kind of protect the the important material gains that were made under these left wing governments, um, but also in pushing to open up a greater space for social activism to bring up more of a rupture with capitalist social relations, um, you know, and kind of really try to push these processes of participatory democracy that we've been seeing to build a kind of social and ecological economy beyond this extractivist model mm-hmm. that they've said. Um, I think that one thing that's been really imp- that would be really important would be um, that the governments or a lot of the political parties have been resistant to opening up to real critical debate. It's been a question of you're with us or you're against us, which has been important, you know, something that they've tried to do for electoral reasons, obviously, but it's also meant that, you know, social organisations that had legitimate concerns and did not start off as criticisms of the government were excluded and radicalised and, you know, their problems and their objections were not able to become part of the radical processes. So I think that... You know, and this is a case for, I would say, for right now for Venezuela, but also Bolivia, Ecuador, and obviously Brazil and Argentina, is that these parties need to open up to democratization and a real critical debate from the most important movements which are taking place, which will actually have an impact on their policies and their agendas. That was Kyla Sankey on the past, present and future of the pink tide in Latin America. That's all for this week. Talk to you again soon.